are now ready to talk about God and uh, his truth. So uh, welcome to our Cactus Campus and to our chapel venue, Northridge, and to those of you online, all one congregation right now uh, going into God's word. So let's bow and pray, and we're going to dive right in. Father, thank you for uh, your faithfulness to us. We just sang about that. I'm sure, Lord, and the other uh, campuses and venues, God, that they have focused on your faithfulness and your goodness to us in Jesus as well. And so I pray, God, that as we now unpack a story that uh, has the capacity to alter the course of our lives, that you might do that in us. Help us to be attentive. Help us to have open minds and tender hearts to that which you have said to us and now reveal to us as we teach your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to tell you a story today. It's a true story taking place in time and space. It's an old story occurring about 2,000 years ago, but if ever a story transcends time, this one does. For its message is just as relevant today as it was back then for each and every one of us here and also at our campuses and venues. The story takes place in the Middle East shortly after Jesus ascended into heaven and the very first church began. I've told you the story about the very first church before in Acts chapters 2 and 3, how they went from about 100 believers to over 3,000 in one worship service, and it was quite a day. But what I haven't spent much time telling you about is what happens in Acts chapters 4 through 8, because there things really heat up. In fact, a major persecution happens to this brand new church in Jerusalem. And if you think we have it rough today as Christians, you got to read about what happened to them. Because you and I get harangued for being Christians in our culture today and things can be tough and you can be seen as weird and even you know, persecuted for your values or what, ha- or what have you. They lost their homes, their jobs, their livelihood, and they actually had to leave Jerusalem just to save their very lives. In fact, look at what it says in Acts chapter 8 verse 1. It says, a great persecution, great persecution, began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, for those of you who don't know Judea and Samaria in proximity to Jerusalem, here's the deal. This is referring to Sedona and Flagstaff. True. That's about the distance there. So essentially what it's saying is, is that you have lost your home, your job. Persecution is so great in Phoenix that, man, you've had to hightail it up the mountain to get to Sedona or Flagstaff just to save your life. That's what's going on uh, in the book of Acts early on there as it tells the story of the early church. And lest we think that this is not part of God's plan, because Americans tend to think that anything uncomfortable must not be a part of his plan, God was in complete control here, and he would use this scattering to further his work on planet Earth. You guys have heard me say this often, that many times we look in hindsight into the difficulties of our lives and utter two words, only God, only God. Because in hindsight, which my wife always says is 2020, we look back on our lives and though it was difficult, we see God in it. And that's exactly what these early followers would experience. Look at what it goes on to say a couple verses later uh, in, in telling us about this great persecution. It says, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria uh, and began proclaiming Christ to them. 
the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. So obviously, God is up to something here. Even in the midst of their dire circumstances, he's doing his best work in and through those who follow him. So though they are beat up and scattered and all their dreams and hopes on a temporal level are going down the tubes, God is still working in and through him. I like how Rick Warren said it years ago. He said, God never wastes a hurt. Amen. God never wastes a hurt in our lives. And we're seeing that here in the Bible. And it's at this point that the story that you and I want to park in front of today begins. This story involves a guy named Philip and another guy that Philip will meet on the road. Just two men who happen to meet while traveling. And both of their lives are never going to be the same again. So look at how this story begins in Acts chapter 8 beginning at verse 26. It says, but an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. So Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, I want you to notice the two key players in this story, and let's note a few things about them so we can get our bearings straight here. First, obviously, we have this guy named Philip. Many of you know this. Philip was one of the original 12 disciples, right? He was one of the original followers of Jesus. And we know a few things about Philip from the gospel accounts. We know that he called his best friend Nathaniel also to come and follow Jesus. So we know he was really excited to follow Jesus. Philip was involved in the feeding the 5,000. He brought some Greek seekers to Jesus. And he's the one who asked Jesus to reveal the Father to them. And so we know that Philip was very much a faithful follower of Jesus. He even stayed faithful through the brutal crucifixion of Jesus and then into the resurrection. And now we find him here in Acts chapter 8. Remember this, having lost his family and all of his friends and his livelihood in Jerusalem. And what is he doing up there in Flagstaff? He is preaching the gospel to anybody that would listen to him. And what I want you to see here more than anything else, and this is important for our purposes today, is that because Philip was walking with the Lord, and because the Lord was walking with Philip, we just did a whole series on that, Philip was sensitive to God's leading here and was being clearly led by him. Luke, who wrote this book of Acts, is trying to make that very clear to us that Philip is being clearly led by God as he walks with God. So go back one screen here, you'll see this. Uh, It says here, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip and told him to get up and go on that road to Gaza. And so what did Philip do? He got up and went. And then it happens again, go to the next slide, that when he's on that road, it says, then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. And Philip ran up. So so twice Luke makes it clear that God was speaking to Philip and Philip was responding. 
And you know what blows me away about this is that commentators, Bible experts, bicker back and forth on how exactly God spoke to Philip. Like, was it what they call an external visitation where they, God actually spoke to them? Or was it a compelling intuition? They actually used those phrases and kind of like, did God speak to his spirit or did God give him an audible voice? And you know what my response is to that? I don't care. I mean, I heard a Pentecostal preacher years ago, and this says it all. He was giving a talk, and this guy was great. And he said, you know, I was on my back porch the other day, and God said to me, or I had a thought, depending on your theology. <laughs> and that's the way Christians talk. If you come from more of a charismatic background, you say, God said to me, if you're Presbyterian, you had a thought. But we all mean the same thing. <laughs> we do. We all mean that God is working in and through our souls, speaking things to us. And I don't know how Philip heard God, but here's what you need to know. He did hear God, amen? And he responded to God, and that's important for this story. Now, let's talk about the second player then in this story, and that's the Ethiopian eunuch. What you need to know is that most likely he was a true eunuch. If you don't know what that is, Google it later. I'm not going into it. And as barbaric as the practice sounds, and it is, it was a common practice back then in prestigious kingdom courts for males who served the king and queen in administrative duties because they could obviously be trusted to not be swayed by sexual passions. Ethiopia, as many of you know, is very far south into Africa, almost halfway down the African coast, two or three countries below Egypt. And what you need to know for our purposes today, because this is wild even for Bible stories, is that this Ethiopian came from a very, very different culture than the Middle East. I mean, a very different group of people, very different religion. I mean, he's not a likely character to be coming up to Jerusalem to worship. And so again, the Bible experts don't know what to make of that. He could be a Gentile convert to Judaism, or he could be just an interested seeker coming to seek God through Judaism, but he would be considered an outsider no matter what. And being a eunuch, he was prohibited from being a part of the true Israelite community. See Deuteronomy 23.1 for that one. But this man had an obvious thirst for God. He had a thirst for truth. You know people like that sitting right on the surface of his heart. And so he's found reading a portion of the book of Isaiah from the Old Testament as he's traveling back from Ethiopia. And I need you to bring you back to something I said earlier. And that is that God is the one in control of all of this. God sees the Ethiopian's searching heart. God sees Philip, this man who though persecuted and whose outward life is a mess, is yet interested, that is walking closely with the Lord. And God is now bringing them both together so that a massive kind of life change could occur for this Ethiopian. So let's look at what happens next in our story because things heat up right now. It says, Philip ran up and heard him, the Ethiopian, reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip, Philip up into his chariot to sit with him. <laughs> now, folks, I got to tell you, this is the widest door to evangelism in the history of the known world. Amen? 
I mean, this would be like you and I sitting on an airplane, and you know, nobody likes to talk to each other on airplanes nowadays. Have you ever noticed that? Because you're confined, you're in a 16 and a half inch seat. By the way, most of you right now are in a 22 inch seat. Thank me for that. But on an airplane, you're in a really thin seat. And so you don't want to talk to somebody next to you, but imagine if you're in that, that tight coach seat and the guy next to you is reading a, a spiritual book and you go, huh, what are you reading? And the guy goes, oh, it's a book about Jesus. My aunt gave me this book. I don't understand any of it. Could you please explain it to me? <laughs> now, what are you going to say to that? No, I don't like to talk to people on airplanes. I mean, you're going to say, this is a wide open door to evangelism. And that's exactly what happens here. The widest door ever known. And as you guessed it, Philip is going to open his mouth and let God do his work. So look at what happens next. It says, now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or is he talking about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Now we need to just pause for a second in front of this and understand what's happening here. Because this is really tender stuff. At this point, the Ethiopian, as we've established, is wide open to God's truth. You, you got to catch what's going on here. You got a guy from a very secular religion, very secular area of the world, coming up to probably one of the most holy areas of the world, Jerusalem. And, and you got a guy who has a, who has a Greek past, Philip, who had been hanging around with a Jewish rabbi. So you got all these different religions and worldviews converging here. And watch this, when the guy says, what is this passage from Isaiah about? It's from Isaiah 53. Uh, Philip is basically going to say, well, it's not about Judaism. It's not about your religion down in Africa. It's not about anything that the silly Greeks say. See, this passage is all about a guy named, say his name with me, Jesus. And when it says that he suffered, you got to believe Philip explained to him that he suffered for you. You see, Ethiopian, your sin, which you have a lot of experience in, and I do too, has separated you from God. And so God decided to take the initiative and he sent his son, Jesus, into this world. And Jesus paid the price on the cross that you should have paid. And he rose again to show his victory over death so that you might be forgiven for your sin. Years later, theologians would call this lofty theological concept substitutionary atonement. Simply the fact that Jesus atoned for our sins. He was our substitute. That's what Philip is explaining to the Ethiopian. And what I need you guys to see, because this is really important for the story, is that he's not talking to him about religion. He's not talking about all the things that he needs to do. No, that would be the law. He's simply saying it's about a relationship with Jesus. And we know that because when the guy says, hey, can I get baptized, which we'll get to in a minute, Philip says, well, you may if you what? Believe. And then the Ethiopian says, I believe that Jesus is the Christ and he is the son of God. I mean, this is a, 
a, a far out, far out scene here where this guy, this Ethiopian, gets radically saved. Don't miss this. He now understands the gospel that Jesus came to die for him and become his sin bearer. And he has placed his faith, we all have faith, but he has now directed his faith solely upon Jesus. And he's now home with God. He's gone, as the Bible would say, from death to life, from darkness to light, from having no hope to having hope eternal. He's no longer a seeker or even a converted Jew confined by the law. He is now completely home with his maker and his redeemer. It's an amazing story of how God is after everybody in this world, whether you're an Ethiopian or a Greek like Philip or a Jew like Matthew or a guy from Chagrin like me or wherever you're from, God has his eyes on everybody and he's calling everybody into his kingdom through Jesus and he is doing it all over the place, even on a desert road into Gaza. Now, I gotta ask you a question. And that is, have you ever thought that a story was over only to find out it's not? My guess is many of you have. Uh, one of the things I do to unwind uh, is I read novels. I'm constantly reading theology and history and other things. And so novels for me are kind of like, uh, you know, uh, literature in the form of candy. It just allows me to unwind. And right now, I'm reading a whole set of novels by a New York Times bestseller by the name of Daniel Silva. Some of you might have read him. Silva writes novels about a Mossad agent in Israel named Gabriel Alon, and he's the protagonist in the story, and it's all about the adventures of him protecting Israel. They are not religious novels, so they're not spiritual ones. I mean, it's published by Harper Collins or something like that, and yet they're great entertaining novels, and it gives you a little bit of the modern history of Israel since, it's, uh, since the founding of Zionism in 1948. And one of the things that Silva is known for is that you kind of get to the end of the novel, and this happens on almost every one of them that I've read, and the novel ends, and you think, oh good, Gabriel Lon is still alive and everything is good, and yet there's still about 40 pages left in the novel. And you think to yourself, well, what more does he have to say? I mean, you know, the bad guy is dead and the good guy's alive and Israel's still okay and all of that. And, and yet you read on and he just does some things to wrap it up more on a relational level about this guy's personal life and all of that that really do add a nice bow to the story. But you would have thought that the story would have ended 40 pages earlier. The reason that that is important is because this is precisely what happens in our story here. You would think that it's over right now, with the Ethiopian now being saved and all, but no. Look at what happens in verses 36 and 38. It says, as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. You know, again, commentators kind of bicker back and forth here on how the Ethiopian knew about baptism, which I think is a hilarious thing to argue about because the reality is he knew about it. He probably most likely knew about it because Philip would have told him about it and Luke just didn't record everything that Philip said. In fact, Luke says he explained to him certain things. And my guess is one of them was baptism, just like Peter did to his crowd in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. 
But the eunuch does know about baptism here. And so what I need you to notice here is that that's the chosen end of this story. That this idea of baptism, now watch this, completes the salvation experience. It's kind of a bow, a, a ribbon, a cherry on top of the cake. It doesn't save you as we'll see in a minute, but it's a completion of that salvation experience. And the eunuch knew it, Philip knew it, and decided to baptize him in that moment. It's a powerful story. Now it's over. It's timeless in its meaning and message. So here's what I want to do in about the 14 or 15 minutes we have before we go to the communion table. I want to wrap up by noting three things that this story hammers home to you and me. These are three takeaway points for you that you can now go, ah, I get what God is trying to say in this story. And here's the first one. And that is that we all need our sin forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. We all need our sin forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. This is obviously the key point of the story, that you have this Ethiopian from a faraway land, as we've said, from a vastly different religion, now in, Jew in Israel where there is Judaism, and God delivers him neither through his old religion nor through Judaism, but through Jesus. And here's what we need to learn from that, because this is relevant to you and I today. And that is that Jesus Christ is the only hope, the universal hope, and the one who can forgive us of our sins and bring us to God. And the reason that I need to hammer that home to many of you here today is because many of you are saved, many of you believe in Jesus, but you live in a culture today in which you almost feel embarrassed about that at times and you want to fit into the culture because our culture looks at you and says you're narrow-minded, you're exclusive by thinking that Jesus is the only way and you tend to feel bad for that and I'm here today to tell you two things. One, culture is wrong, amen? And two, you don't need to feel bad about that and here's why. When I say that culture is wrong, I'm just simply saying they see this as exclusive. Jesus would say to them, I'm the most inclusive thing you're ever going to meet on a spiritual level. Amen? Yeah. I mean, think about it. Every major world religion tells you you got to do something in order to fit in. I get it. That's why they think we're exclusive. Certain religions say you got to pray five times a day. You got to meditate in this certain way. You got to avoid eating these kinds of animals. I've studied world religion. I get people's perspective on it. And in that, they're right. Here's what they don't understand Jesus came along and said, shenanigans with all that stuff. Jesus came along and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then he opened his arms wide, died for the sins of the whole world, and yelled from that cross, come ye, come all. He's the most inclusive thing to ever hit this planet. And Christians mess it up. You can clap at that. <laughs> and this is for another sermon, but Christians mess it up. And I've told you guys before, when we add a bunch of things to do and a bunch of rules to getting saved, right? Somebody came up to me after last night's message and said, well, doesn't Christianity have a bunch of rules? I said, yeah, here's a problem. Most of them aren't found in the Bible. Most of them are things that we add from our traditions or from our own value system. They're not bad, but as soon as you tie those to a, to a seeker and say, well, in order to be a part of us, you got to do this, we're no different than any other major world religion. 
See, the Jesus that we need to present before people, the Jesus that Philip presented before this Ethiopian was the pure Jesus who came to forgive you of your sins and who calls you to simply believe and trust in him. That's it. And once you do that, God's now got you and things will start to fall into place. Will he ask you to maybe give up some things over time? What's the answer to that? Yes. Will he ask you to, to, to start maybe to go to church and become involved in a community? Yes. But, but those aren't the prerequisites for coming into the kingdom. The only prerequisite is to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. And once you're in relationship with him, he says, we'll work on the other stuff. But that's why this is the most universal call. Don't ever forget that. And church, don't be embarrassed about that. We live in a crazy culture today and they don't get it. I get that. And we don't need to be mean about it. But you're in good stead in the savior that you have chosen. And you're not to ever be embarrassed in presenting him to the world in front of you. And if you're here today and you have yet to believe in Jesus, man, today is your day. You need to trust him like that Ethiopian did. You need to believe in him as the only one who can give you eternal life. And as you do that, man, you will never regret that decision. Now, here's a second takeaway that we have from this uh, story. And that is that baptism is a sign and symbol of this faith. Baptism is a sign and symbol of this faith. And the reason that this is important is that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, made it very intentional choice to end the story, as we already established, not on belief, but on baptism. And we have to ask why. Uh, baptism, many Christians even themselves don't understand. Here's a good explanation of baptism from Romans chapter 6. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What's the author th saying here? He's actually using that word baptism in two different ways. In one sense, he's using, using it in a symbolic, highly spiritual way. And then the other way he's using it is in the water physical baptism way. And what I mean by that is he's saying that when you came to Christ... Figuratively, you were immediately baptized into Christ. You were brought into the kingdom. How? Because you now united with Jesus in his death. You died to yourself. You united with Christ in his death on, on, on the cross for your sins. But then you also believe that God raised him from the dead out of that grave. And you're now united with him in resurrection and in walking in the newness of life. That's your salvation experience. But in using this word baptism, we then know that the early Christian practice, and this is commanded in the scriptures for all believers, is that you're now to, to, to get baptized in water as a sign and symbol. It doesn't save you. Your faith saves you. Jesus saves you. But now you're to be baptized as a follower of Jesus. Now watch this. So that when you go down in that water, it's a symbol and a sign of uniting with Christ in his death on a cross for your sins and as you come out of that water it's a sign and symbol of that resurrection that now allows you to walk in newness of life 
There's only two things that the Bible has commanded us to do tied to our salvation, baptism and communion. And baptism we're to do once, communion we're to do on a regular level. And the baptism is super important because it's a identification with Jesus that you are now saved. Again, it doesn't save you, but it's a necessary postscript to your salvation. And that's what this story shows us. And then finally, this story teaches us one last thing. And this is going to make some of you squirm, but let's squirm. And that is don't wait any longer. Don't wait any longer. What do I mean by that? Let me share with you what the clear pattern is in the Bible when it comes to a believer, somebody getting saved, and this idea of baptism. And here's the pattern. You believe and you get baptized. In Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people believed and they were baptized. In Acts 8 here, the Ethiopian believed and he was immediately baptized. In Acts 16, the Philippian jailer believed and then he and his family were baptized. And so here's the deal for you and me today and Cactus Venue Chapel Northridge dial into this and that is that some of you today, if not many of you, need to finish or complete the story of your salvific experience with Jesus by getting baptized. You need to do that. That's the call that your pastor is giving to you today. That's why I gave you that example earlier of reading a book and getting about 40 pages to the end, thinking it's complete, but knowing that you still have 40 pages to go and that that's what Acts 8 teaches us is that many, if not some, if not many of you, have had a wonderful experience with Jesus. You believe and trust in him. That's why you're here in church today. You're worshiping him. But you never got baptized as a sign and symbol of that salvation experience that you've had with him. And what you need to hear today is to finish that story and to get on your way in your sanctification, you need to be baptized you need to cap off your salvation with a baptism. And again, the baptism doesn't save you. You're already saved. It's a sign and symbol of your salvation. You know, we've been praying for a lot of you when it comes to this choice to get baptized because we just want to have that done here as a church so we can move on and then get new people saved and baptize them. And so uh, this week we were talking as a staff about you guys and I asked Derek, the head of our worship arts uh, team, I said, you know, why is it do you think that some people just aren't getting baptized? Like, why do we have believers at Scottsdale Bible Church that have clearly come to be followers of Jesus, but have not followed him into the waters of baptism? And Derek uh, talked about it with his team, and then on, on Friday sent me uh, the excuses that he has heard over the years of why people don't get baptized. Would you like to go through these with me? I think you would. So here's the number one reason that we hear. And I love this first one. He, he, and I'll read it directly to you. As a put together Scottsdale person, I'm not inclined to don a t-shirt and shorts and get dunked in water in front of hundreds of strangers. Now I'm sure that's none of you, but just for the sake of argument, here's the answer to this one. And it's a really good answer. You're going to love this. And this is why I did this story today. And the Ethiopian that we're seeing getting baptized here today, and I don't mean to rain on your parade, is a lot more sophisticated than any of you are right now. How do I know that? Because he was a court official from Ethiopia in charge of the treasury for the queen of Ethiopia, a gal named Candace. 
That's an extremely high and prestigious job that this guy had. He's in a chariot, not a scooter. He's not riding a bike. He's in a chariot made by BMW back then. It's a really nice chariot that he's in. And so he's probably got a whole entourage with him. And so he, because he would never travel alone. And here's the point, and you got to let this settle in. He is so excited about his faith in Jesus that he says, look, here's water. Now, when he says here's water, do you all understand what water he's pointing to? This is dirty Middle East river water down near the Gaza Strip. I've been there. It's not nice water. It's water. I mean, to gross you out, but where do you think toilets flushed into back then? Yeah, exactly. And so he sees that water and says, is there any reason I can't get baptized right now? Here's my simple point. If a guy like that, who's 10 times more sophisticated than you who live in Scottsdale or Paradise Valley, wherever you're from, can get baptized in dirty Middle East river water, certainly you can. In beautiful, wonderful, clean Scottsdale tap water. Because it's not about the water. It's, yeah, you can clap at that too, I guess. It's not about the water. It's about God. And that brings me to the second thing, is that here's the second reason people, I love this one. Um, I don't like being the center of attention ever. Oh man, this is, I'm so glad you brought this up. You're not. In our baptisms, we're not making you the center of the attention. Who's the center of the attention? Say his name with me. Jesus. We're simply highlighting that Jesus has saved your pathetic soul. And now that you've come to believe and trust in mine too, now that you've come to believe and trust in him, we're shining the spotlight on him in you. Amen. And so we're not trying to put the spotlight on you. We're trying to say, look what Jesus did with someone like this. Isn't this wonderful? And that's what happened on my baptism day. It was a glorious day and it wasn't about me. My parents came and my parents said, man, it was all about Jesus. So that's what's happening here. Third reason some have, my testimony is private and I'm not interested in other people knowing about my past. Okay, all joking aside, I get that one. I'm pretty vulnerable from the pulpit and it mortifies my wife 50% of the time. So I understand <laughs> that not all of you want to share you know, your, even your journey with hundreds of people. I really do get that. And so, you know, it's interesting. Scottsdale Bible Church, when I came here, does baptisms different than I used to do in my last three churches. In other words, there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to tell your testimony in order to be baptized. Did you know that? That's not in the Bible at all. Um, and so before I came to Scottsdale Bible, we never baptized people by reading their story. We baptize people this way. I'd bring Gil into the, wake up Gil. I'd bring Gil into the tank here. I know you are, I'm teasing. I'd bring Gil into the tank here and I, and I would say, hey, Gil, have you trusted and believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? And Gil would say, yes. And I'd say, and Gil, are you trusting in Christ and him alone for eternal life? He'd say, yes. And I'd say, man, what a great story. Let's baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'd take him on into the water. See, to be baptized, you have to affirm that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You don't have to tell your whole story. That's just a practice that Scottsdale Bible has had over the years. So next week we're planning on doing uh, more baptisms than we usually do. So we're actually not going to tell the stories next week, everybody's stories. We're gonna do them more in the traditional way. So if telling your story in front of hundreds of people has mortified you or that you're just too private for that, then now is a good time 
for you to get baptized because it's going to be a little bit more private, but still uh, with your community of faith here uh, in this church. Here's the last excuse that some have given. given. And again, I, I get this one. I've been a Christian for a long time, and I don't want people to know that I've never been baptized. I understand that. Two things real quick on that. One, um, and you just got to feel this. If you think that, and you're somebody in the audience next week, or in the congregation, and you see somebody up here getting baptized, and you find out that they got saved, you know, say back in the 1970s at a Billy Graham crusade, but, you know, never got baptized because maybe they didn't know or what have you, just for whatever reason, are you actually going to judge them and think less of them because of that? I, I just, I mean, I know Christians can be judgmental. I get that. But, but that one just seems so far-fetched. I just don't think anybody's going to judge you for that. I think we're a grace-based church and that the vast majority of people know that there's a lot of us in that category. You know, some of you were baptized as babies. I was. And I wrestled with this a lot when I was a new Christian because I was baptized as a baby and now my pastor, like I'm telling you, was saying, as a believer, you need to be baptized. And I was like, wait a second, didn't, didn't what happened as a baby count? <laughs> and, and here's how I've made sense of that over the years. This is really important. There is a strain of Christianity, uh, United Methodists, uh, Episcopalians, Catholic, uh, Presbyterians that argue that babies should be baptized and that that's sufficient. And I respect that theology, but I don't see it biblically. I just will let you know that. I don't think that's the best interpretation of the Bible, but I do respect it because it's been around for a long time. But I wouldn't be a, 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 a more Baptistic pastor if I didn't defend the view that I have. And our church has that view. But I think there's a hybrid here that's really important. And that is that if you were baptized as a baby, I can all but promise you, no matter what tradition you were in, your parents baptized you in hopes that someday you would consciously choose Jesus. Amen? That's why they did that. The Presbyterians call it being ushered into the covenant community where someday you're going to recognize who Jesus is and choose to follow him. All I'm saying to you today is that as a believer, and I think the Bible says to be baptized as a believer, that if you choose to do that now, that's not going against what happened to you as a baby. Watch this. It's a fulfillment of your parents' wishes. Amen? And so it doesn't abrogate what happened in the past. It completes it. And again, there's no shame at all in that. I made that decision when I was a young man. I'd been baptized as a baby because that's the tradition my parents I was born into. And I said to mom and dad, I'm getting baptized again. My dad has a great sense of humor. He said, is this it? And I said, yes, this is it. And, but he understood that, that what happened as a baby was the hopes that someday I would find Jesus and walk with him. And indeed I did. And it was a glorious day. At the end of the day, I'd like our church to take the road of the Ethiopian. I would like our church to be able to look Jesus in the face and say, I believe. And then I'd like our church to be able to say, look, there's water, because next week we're gonna have water. And is there any reason I should not be baptized? If this has tugged on your heartstrings at all today, then here's what I want you to do. After the service here and at other campuses and venues, talk to a pastor. There'll be a special table set up here at Shea for you to go and inquire about baptism, and we'd love to talk with you and uh, get you ready for next week because it's going to be a glorious weekend. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you are to us. Thank you that even this 
2,000-year-old Christian ordinance that we've all heard about baptism carries so much life because it's not about tradition, it's about Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that as we all give cogent thought to our spiritual lives, that even this decision to get baptized as believers in you, God, that you'd be honored and glorified. And Lord, may you continue to strengthen our lives in your church. Thank you for the story before us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.